Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Let me begin today with a favorite story of mine. It's the story of a guy named Ed Farrell who traveled from Detroit to Ireland to celebrate his uncle's 80th birthday. Uncle Seamus was his uncle's name. And on the morning of uh, Uncle Seamus's birthday, Ed and uh, his uncle rose early to greet the sun. They walked along the shores of Lake Killarney, uh, loving the emerald green grass and the crystal blue waters, and they just stood and watched that scene for some 20 minutes. Silent. And all of a sudden, Uncle Seamus, this 80-year-old man, begins to skip and dance along the shore of the lake. And uh, he had tears streaming down his face as he did. And the much younger Ed rushed to keep up with him, finally caught up to him breathlessly and said, Uncle Seamus, you look so very happy. Would you please tell me why? What's going on? What are you dancing and skipping and crying with apparent joy about? And the, the old man said, you see, the father is very fond of me. Ah, me father is so very fond of me. I love that picture of a man who felt so loved by God that he exalted in God's love and danced with sheer pleasure. And my question to you today is, do you feel that way in your relationship with God the Father? Do you feel that he's very fond of you? I hope so. And if not, I'm going to try to get you to feel that way today. Uh, We should live with a deep and constant awareness of how much God loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. I I mean, if there's anything that I want you to leave with today, it's with a sense of how much God loves you and how much God wants to be in relationship with you. Today I'm going to spend some time, take me a minute to get there, but I'm going to spend some time talking about a very famous person in Scripture who had this view of God and who had a a view of God that said that God had a view of him that was one of grace and love. I'm going to talk in a little while about how King David danced with sheer pleasure, with all of his might, as he brought God's presence back into Zion in a very famous story in Scripture. But before I get to that, let me, let me read our text today in Hebrews. So uh, we've made our way over months of teaching to Hebrews 12. I'm going to really focus, kind of broadly, but focus on one idea. I'm not going to exegete the text Most people don't know or care what that means, but I'm not going to really dig into every word of the text as I have been. I'm going to talk more about the broad idea that's presented here, and uh, we're not going to get to Hebrews 13, which is the last chapter in Hebrews, because alas, 
we're out of time in this trimester, but it's really self-explanatory. Hebrews 13 has some practical advice. I encourage you to read it and meditate on it this week. It, it, it's, it's beautiful. But here's today's focus. Hebrews 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. I'll stop and say the mountain that the writer is talking about here is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai where God gave Moses the law. Mount Sinai was a frightening place. In fact, so frightening that we're told that uh, those who were there couldn't bear what was commanded. In other words, the law was something that they knew they could not keep. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, and as a quote from the Old Testament, I am trembling with fear. But you, the writer to these Jewish Christians living in Rome in the mid-60s A.D. who were thinking about leaving their new faith in Jesus as the Messiah and returning to the traditions of Judaism, to Moses and all that Sinai represents, the writer writes to them, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mount Sinai represents Moses and the religion, if you please, of Judaism, the law, the tabernacle system, the sacrificial system, all the stuff we've been talking about for months, the high priest, all that. Zion represents what Jesus created when he died, was buried, and rose again on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and created the church. Zion refers to, in Scripture, the dwelling place of God, the church, here and in heaven, now and forever. Zion refers to the church instituted by the new covenant that Jesus introduced. Sinai, Moses, Old Covenant, Zion, Jesus, New Covenant. Sinai, law, Zion, grace. Sinai, fear. Zion, love. Sinai, Moses, who as great as he was, and though he played the role God called him to play, Zion, Jesus, who were taught earlier in Hebrews that as great as Moses was, Jesus is greater because everything Moses did pointed to Jesus. So, Throughout Hebrews, the writer makes the point that as good as Moses was, his ultimate purpose was to point people to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, that Jesus kept the law perfectly, that 
whereas no one else could keep the law, Jesus in fact did, and that we are counted to have kept the law through faith in Jesus, through our faith that he died for us, that he entered death, that he defeated death, that he was raised from the dead, that he was exalted to heaven, that he sits on a throne now at the right hand of God in a place called Zion. Jesus was who Moses was leading us to. And so we see this, this dramatic contrast between what Moses did at Mount Sinai and what Jesus did when he instituted the new covenant and a whole new way for humanity to approach God, to think about God through what he did in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. These two mountains, Sinai and Zion, represent the two covenants, highlighting the stark contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Mount Sinai, again, I'm repeating myself, but doing it intentionally, a lot of stuff, and I want to make sure everybody's kind of tracking with me. Mount Sinai represents the law of Moses and the tabernacle of Moses and the entire religious system of Judaism. Mount Zion represents what Jesus did in creating the church as the dwelling place of God both now and forever. They represent two entirely different ways of viewing God both now and forever. Sinai, again, represents fear Zion represents good news. Uh, Sinai represents law. Zion represents grace. One, Sinai, is impossible to enjoy because it leads to a feeling of distance from God, whereas Zion has a person dancing in pleasure because they know they are loved by God. I hope I don't offend someone when I say this. I, I've put my foot in my mouth around making statements like this, but I'll give it a try anyway. Um, so I, every once in a while I meet a family. We have families in our church who have named one of their children Zion. I've not yet ever met a family who named their child Sinai. Why is that? Well, because instinctively, when you understand the difference between Sinai, this mountain of fear, and Zion, this mountain of grace, you kind of understand why Zion is a beautiful thing to be called by. N.T. Wright, the uh, great New Testament scholar and his commentary in Hebrews, writes, Hebrews paints this contrasting picture between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in bold, almost lurid colors. Mount Sinai was a terrifying sight, burning like a volcano, dark with clouds, roaring with strong winds. Out of that, worse, came a trumpet blast and then a voice, and such a voice, according to Exodus 19, where this picture of how the law came to Moses at Sinai is set out in detail. The voice from heaven could be heard at the foot of the mountain, frightening the people even more and warning that nobody, not even an animal, should come anywhere near the mountain, so holy was it. At the center of the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, in fact, is the contrast between a holiness which is terrifying and unapproachable and a holiness which is welcoming, cleansing, and healing. Part of what happens when you continue to read in Hebrews chapter 12 is those who have come to Mount Zion by grace and faith are called to holiness. But it's not a holiness that's impossible to obtain because we're trying to obtain it on the basis of our own merit, but rather it is a holiness that comes by being in relationship with a loving God who works in us to make us holy. 
We're not asked to keep a law written on the tablets of stone, but early in Hebrews we're told that God, through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, writes His law on our hearts and in our minds. It's not as if we're not called to holiness, but God says, you know what? The way this is going to happen is through a love relationship with you where I'm going to work in you to help you become a better person than you could ever become on the strength of your own merit. So, let's talk then about the, you know, let let me just say one other thing and get this out of the way. When I talk over the next few minutes about the law, you talk about the law, you talk about uh, uh, two things, or at least when I talk about the law, here's how I think about it. I think, first of all, about the law of Moses, capital T, the capital L law, the law of Moses, the law that God gave Moses that the people were commanded to keep, that was, it formed Judaism and is the basis of moral law still today. It, it was God gave it to Moses. It's important to not discredit the law. Um, but the fact is no one could keep it which was part of the reason God gave the law to Moses. That may be confusing, but the reason he gave the law to Moses, we're taught in the New Testament, is so that people could realize that they couldn't keep it. That, and by the way, whatever law you set for yourself in order to make yourself right with God, you will break it. How many of you uh, would make the law? If you were making your own law, how many of you would make the law, I will not lie? Can I see your hands if you'd make that law? How many of you have, how many of us have ever lied? I mean, I, I could say I, I intentionally don't, but sometimes I find myself having said something. It wasn't quite, maybe I might have exaggerated that a little or whatever. The fact is, the law, anytime you have law, the law will be broken. And so, so part of what God wanted to show humanity through this ex, ex, special relationship he had with the Jews was that we can't keep his law. That we can't become holy enough, good enough, right enough in our own strength and power. See, religion is based on law, and this is why religion kills. The Apostle Paul said, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Because we cannot keep the law, all right? So, So the law of Moses ends up causing humanity to stand up saying, we can't do it! And God says, okay, now you're set up. Now I'm going to send you someone who's going to help you. And he sends a savior. See, the law teaches us we need saving. We need help. We can't do it in ourselves. Okay, that's the law of Moses. Then there's the law principle. The law principle is this default position we all fall back on, which for some reason has us trying to get good enough trying to get good enough for a holy God who we can never get good enough for. It may be your own rules. I'm a good, I'm going to be a good person. I'm glad. I imagine probably everybody in this room right now would like to say, I'm going to be a good person. But listen, as good a person as you might become, you are not good enough for a holy God. He is perfect. You are not. He, he, he is worthy. We are not. He's deserving. We are not. The fact is, Scripture teaches us the wages of sin are death. What we deserve is death, but what we get is life. And the reason we get life is because Jesus Christ died the death we should have died, did for us what we cannot do. And that's grace. So when I talk about the law, if I keep sidetracking this way, we're going to be a while, and I don't want to keep you too long. 
the law of Moses, but then I don't imagine any of us are here struggling with the law of Moses. Probably not. Now, now I, I will say we, we are, we're really blessed to have a number of, of Jewish brothers and sisters who join us on Sundays, and I always have that in my mind, but I still think for the most part we're not thinking about keeping the law. But the law principle... I'm gonna, and, and when we know we haven't done enough, so, so you're gonna be a good person, you're gonna be a good person, you do something where you say, oh man, I was not a good person this week. And then what do we do? If we show up with that kind of mentality, we have a Sinai view of God. It's fear, it's trembling, it's lightning, it's a loud voice, it's God's gonna zap me. God should zap me. If I was God, I would zap me. But we haven't come to that mountain. We've come to what Jesus has done and what Jesus has created through Zion. So let me then get into the teaching by uh, making this statement. It'll take me a while to explain this. I'll come back to this uh, here in, in about 25 minutes to wrap up this thought. It's, it's this, that the church is a restoration of the tabernacle of David on Mount Zion, not the tabernacle of Moses on Mount Sinai. The church, the Christian church, is a restoration of the tabernacle of David on Mount Zion, not the tabernacle of Moses on Mount Sinai. So the law of Moses and the plan for the tabernacle was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai soon after the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. The tabernacle of Moses was called the tent of meeting. It was called the tent of meeting because God wanted to manifest his presence there and meet humanity there. But the way he did it was by meeting one man one time a year who entered the Holy of Holies where God said he lived and made atonement on behalf of all the people. One guy, one time a year, the high priest is the only person who got to go through the veil into God's presence in this place called the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle of Moses was a system of elaborate tents. It, it, uh, it, in its exterior courtyard, it, uh, uh, it offered what's called the outer court, and the entire congregation of the Jews were able to come into the outer court, at least up to a point, up to an altar called the brazen altar. And then inside this, this, this tent structure was another tent, which was divided by a huge veil, separating this tent into two tents, two rooms. One was the most, one was the holy place, and this is where all the priests, uh, the Levites, uh, who were the priests in the tribe of priests in Judaism, they were allowed to go into this holy place, and there were things they would do there like burn incense and like uh, refresh the show bread and stuff like that. And then there was this veil. And on the other side of the, this huge veil was the, a room called the Most Holy Place of the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. God said that he lived over this piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. This is where he manifests his presence or his glory on this planet. Obviously, God lives everywhere, but God said, I'm going to manifest myself there. The, the, the Jews have a beautiful word for this. It's Shekinah. This is where the Shekinah glory of God took residence. This is where God was enthroned on this planet. But only one guy, once a year who met all kinds of specific requirements, could actually go in there into God's presence, which he was frightened to do, which he had to go through all kind of ritualistic purification to do. But I'm sure when he got in there, it must have been an unbelievably awesome thing to be in the Shekinah glory of God. I mean, look how hard Indiana Jones worked to find this ark. But anyway, 
So God was unapproachable behind that curtain. And, um, and that's important. And then uh, this tabernacle was glorious. It was really beautiful. When you study how it was made, it was beautiful and also portable. And so um, the, the children of Israel leave Egypt, enter into the season of Exodus. They stop at Sinai, first order of business. Moses goes up in the mountain. God gives him a plan for the tabernacle. They build the tabernacle. And as they move through the wilderness for about 40 years, they move the tabernacle every place they went. Well, when finally, about 1450 B.C., they crossed the Jordan River and entered finally into the Promised Land, Joshua, the successor of Moses, took the tabernacle of Moses and he, he erected it, he put it up on a mountain called Mount Shiloh. There are a lot of mountains in this story today, and a big reason why it was is in, in, in all ancient civilizations, uh, mountains were considered to be particularly important as it concerned the deity because the, the idea is the higher you get, the closer you get. Well, so there's a lot of mountains going on in this whole story, and, um, uh, and the, 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 this story is historically correct. I mean, uh, so it's not fantasy land, but this is, this is what's going on. They, they, they put the tabernacle of Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, I'm sorry, on Mount Shiloh, and um, the, 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 the life of the nation is centered now around Shiloh for about 350 years. 350 years, we go through the season. Now Joshua was the first of the judges, and there are these series of leaders for about 400 years called the judges who led Israel. Uh, and the second to the last judge was a guy named Eli, and under Eli's rule, one day the people misguidedly took the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle at Shiloh, God, if you please, who dwelt there, to, to go into battle against a ferocious enemy, and because the leaders were corrupt, God allowed the ark to be taken captive by the enemies of the Israelis, of the Israelites. And so um, from that point forward, the ark of the covenant never returned back to the tabernacle of Moses that now is on Mount Shiloh. Now, the ark did return. Every place that, that it went in the hands of God's enemies Plagues happened. They decided they wanted nothing of it, and they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it on a cart, and they have it sent back into Israel, trying to kind of wash their hands of the whole affair. And the Ark of the Covenant is not taken back to Shiloh, but it's it 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 for whatever reason, and I don't know that anybody now actually knows why. It's put in the home of some guy named Abinadab. Uh, it's in a place called Kirith Jerem in the home of a guy named Abinadad. And they prayed and sanctified one of his sons to watch over the ark and evidently uh, a, a, a generation after him because the ark stayed in the house of this guy named Abinadad for about 90 years until a young man named David became king over Israel. Now you have Eli, 
He's succeeded by Samuel. Samuel uh, uh, anoints Saul as king. Saul messes up because he tries to act like a priest when he wasn't supposed to. He was only a king. And then David becomes king over Israel. And this guy named David had this special love relationship with God. And God said about David that David is a man after my own heart. And he will carry out my program fully. They had this thing. David and God. And David, as his first act as king, captured Jerusalem. It was the first time that Jerusalem had ever been captured by the descendants of Abraham, by the Jews. This is what God had promised Abraham many years before. David actually actualizes it and captures Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is built on a mount named Zion. And then the next thing that David does as his official act as king is told to us in 1 Chronicles 13. There are actually chapters and chapters about this in the writings of 2 Samuel and the writings of uh, the 1 Chronicles in the Old Testament, the history books of the Jews. 1 Chronicles 13.1, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Let us, I want you to here, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading fast because I, I need to hurry a little bit, but I want you to hear the passion in these words from this lover of God named David, the psalmist, the writer of the most beautiful praise and exaltation and uh, love story type stuff that any human being's ever written about God. You have to hear his passion. Now he's this young king. He's just captured Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And he says, we, 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 we've got to bring the ark back. It's as if he says, if I'm going to be king here, God's presence is going to be the center of the nation again. Let us bring the ark of God back to us for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul, David and all Israel, David and all Israel went to Kerjath Jerem, Kerjath Jerem, to bring up from there the ark of the Lord uh, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. Many of you will remember the story that the first time that they went to get the ark, David and the whole nation from the home of Abinadab, uh, they, they, they put the ark on a cart like the enemies of God's people had done, but the cart wasn't supposed to be put on a, on a, uh, I'm sorry, the ark wasn't supposed to be put on a cart. It was supposed to be carried in a way very specific in the law by the priest, and, and, and the, the, the ark starts to fall off the cart, and a guy reaches out and touches it, and when he reaches out to touch it, actually to try to keep it from falling, he's struck dead. Scripture says that God became angry, and then it says David became angry. Part of the relationship between God and David, they actually got angry at each other sometimes. And, and David now, he decides that he doesn't know if he's going to bring the ark back because he's afraid now. And now they take the ark and they put it in the house of a guy named, you ready for this? Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, Nice thing about me going on sabbatical is you're not going to hear anything about Obed-Edoms, Abinadabs, Gittites, uh, termites. You're going to hear normal people standing up here talking about nice, simple things. But you got me at least for today, okay? So, um, so th now the, the ark rests in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom the Gittite. It stays there for three months while David goes to study scripture as to how to move the ark properly. And in the meantime, the house of this guy is blessed. I don't know exactly what that means, but evidently all good things start happening to him. And so David now takes the whole nation back. They get the ark again. They carry it on the shoulder of the priests as they're supposed to do. And they come triumphantly leading the nation in a 
procession to Jerusalem to put the ark in a tent that David had put up for it on Mount Zion. Multiple choirs are singing in various places. Uh, it appears hundreds of, of instruments are playing, and David is dancing. 2 Samuel 6 tells us that wearing a linen ephod. This was the linen ephod of a priest which David shouldn't have been able to wear as a king. Saul got zapped for trying to play like a priest, but David's got this special thing going on that's hard to understand. And David is dancing before the Ark of the Covenant in a linen ephod, and only in a linen ephod. And he's dancing before the Lord with all his might. I don't know what he was saying. He probably didn't speak in an Irish brogue that the father is very fond of me, but somehow or another you get this sense that David is overwhelmed with pleasure in the presence of God. And all of he and Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. You might remember Richard Gere playing the role of David in an old movie like 1980s that gives you somewhat of a depiction of what it was like when David was dancing before the ark of God in this ephod, dancing with all of his might, almost like a crazy man, to such an extent that his wife who was watching got offended and there was a breach in their relationship because she said, David, you're making a, a crazy fool out of yourself in front of all the people. But David didn't care. He's full of joy. He's full of pleasure. He's full of love. He's bringing God's presence back to Zion or actually bringing God's presence to Zion for the very first time. And so he brings the Ark of the Covenant back. And now this is interesting, at least to me. Uh, it's, it's not a good thing to be the only one interested in your preaching, but it, this is interesting, at least to me, that he doesn't take the Ark of the Covenant and put it back in the tabernacle of Moses, which is Sinai. In fact, for some reason, over the last 90 years, they've moved the tabernacle from Shiloh now to a mount named Gibeon. David doesn't take the Ark of the Covenant to Gibeon and put it back behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies. He takes the Ark and he puts it in what scholars call a makeshift tent. It was basically a pole tent. It wasn't an elaborate, beautifully embroidered, colorful, complex system of tents that that had, you know, an outer court and a holy place and, and, a, and a most holy place, but it was, I think we have a, yeah, as best we can find anyone trying to figure this out. It was a, it was a, it was a, uh, the scholar T. Bill Arnold, the Old Testament scholar said, a makeshift pole tent. It, it didn't appear to have a veil separating anyone from God's presence. And in fact, all the Levites and David were able to go into this tent it seems anytime they wanted to and be in God's presence there. And so 1 Chronicles 16 says they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Now instead of one man once a year having access to God's glory through the veil, now the entire class of priests at least and David, who's not even a priest, are going into God's presence. 
Many of the Psalms were written around this era. You'll read the Psalms of David about being in God's presence. It's about this. You read the Psalms, for instance, of Asaph, who wrote a lot of Psalms. David wrote about, if I remember right, about 70 of the Psalms. And there are others who wrote many of the other Psalms, including a guy named Asaph. Asaph was the Russ Thompson. He was a worship director in the tabernacle of David. He was one of three. Uh, he was a full-time worship director. And they had 24 hours a day of praise and worship and prayer for 40 years nonstop in this makeshift tent called the Tabernacle of David. First Chronicles 16, verse 37, David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. Imagine, imagine nobody ever got to be in God's presence that way. And now there are hundreds and hundreds of people who have access to a God who heretofore had been unaccessible and God doesn't zap them. Not at Zion, because this isn't Sinai. He didn't zap them. He welcomes them. In fact, God enjoyed living in this simple tent. First Chronicles 17. Now it came to pass, when David was dwelling in his house, somebody had come and built David a beautiful palace. When David was dwelling in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but I'm feeling guilty because the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under ten curtains. God's living in a pole tent, and I'm living in a palace. I want to build God a house. And Nathan said, go do it. But that night, God shows up to Nathan in a dream. And he said, uh, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent, and from one tabernacle to another, Sinai to Zion, tabernacle of Moses, tabernacle of David, wherever have I moved about with all Israel, wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now this is fascinating. And, and the thing that's fascinating about it is God says to David, and there are a couple of chapters in scripture given to this story. It's a very important story in salvific history. Let me throw that word out there. It's a very important story about how God wants to deal with people. And, and so David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, I don't want you to build the house. And he essentially says, I'm happy in the tent. I want to live in the tent at least for a while. And he tells David he can't build the house. Now, it's, you know, many of us, if we went to Sunday school or taught in Sunday school, the reason that David couldn't build God a house was because uh, he was a man of war and he had shed much blood. How many of you have heard that somewhere along the way? I see two hands. Well, anyway, we have to have a better Sunday school. But nonetheless, no, I saw a bunch of hands. I saw a bunch of hands. He was a man of war and shed much blood. Actually, in this interaction between David and, and God about him building him a house, God doesn't say one thing about that. David says that many years later when he's giving the plans of the temple to Solomon. David says this, but when God actually speaks to David about building him a house, God is not upset at David. He's blessing David, and he says he wants to stay in the tent, and then God goes on and says, furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house and it shall be when your days are fulfilled obviously God's not angry at David he says you want to build me a house no I want to stay in the tent for now I'm going to build you a house 
And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. It's very typical of prophecy in the Old Testament. There is an immediate physical fulfillment that's going to happen through David's son Solomon, who's going to continue the house or the kingdom of David, which house now is referring to a reign, to a rule, to a sphere of influence, to a kingdom. So he's saying, Solomon, your son, is going to continue your house, David. But he's also, more importantly, talking about Jesus, son of David, who is going to build a house called the house of David and sit on the throne in Zion forever, okay? So it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. It's clearly not talking only about Solomon. Solomon didn't have a throne forever. He was talking about Jesus, the root, the beginning, and the offspring, the descendant of David the son of David, who sits on the throne of David in the kingdom of God in Zion now. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. So God says, David, I like being in the tent. I want to stay there. And I believe And I'll start trying to make this a little more practical now. I believe that, and I'm not the only one who believes, there's a lot of people who believe this, that the reason that God wanted to stay in that tent, which he did for 40 years until Solomon built a temple according to David's plans, and it was a glorious place where, again, there was an outer court, a holy place, and a holy of holies, and so on, but that wasn't going to come later. God lives in this tent for 40 years, and I believe the reason he did is he wanted to show us what the church to come was going to look like. I think I can prove that in just a second, but... but. So it's as if God extended to David a special dispensation of grace right in the middle of the Old Covenant. Hear this, guys. God, to my understanding, has never treated anyone the way he's treating David, right in the middle of the law. It's like he presses the pause button with David to give a glimpse of the kind of relationship God ultimately is going to have with human beings through the son of David, Jesus Christ. And he he simply treats David differently. The apostle Paul talked about this when he was writing about the difference between people who see themselves as being saved by works and those who are saved by believing in Jesus. He said to anyone who does not work, in other words, people who are trying to keep the law to to earn their way into favor with the holy God. He says to anyone who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, meaning that God on the basis of someone putting their trust in Jesus, considers that person to be just or to be made right with him. To anyone who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, God says, if you believe in my son Jesus, I'm going to consider you having been made right with me. Come on in to my presence. Let's have a relationship with each other. Even though you're an unholy person and I'm a holy God, Jesus has made up the difference here. Let me go back and read it again. To anyone who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, 
Their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks, and now, he, now we go to David. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. God credits righteousness apart from works. How does God count us as being right with God? Because we're good people? No. He counts us as being right with God because we believe in Jesus, who was the goodest person. And we're counted to be made right with God on the basis of the perfection of Jesus. Well, David foresaw this, Paul says. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God credits righteousness, apart from works. And then he quotes from one of David's psalms, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord will never count against them. What would it be like to have an awareness like David surely had that God said, you know what, I choose you. I, David... I'm just, I'm crazy about you. I, I'm not going to hold your sins against you. We're going to have a relationship where you have access to my presence unlike anybody ever has. What, what would it be like to live having the feeling that God looked at you and was saying those kind of things? See, you might say, well, I don't know. God could never say that to me. Because, and most of us, if we're honest about ourselves, we could list the reasons why God probably shouldn't do that with us. And if you can't, your wife can. <laughs> well, David had the same kind of stuff, but for some reason God says, I choose you. David, for instance, the law said, well, one of, one of the things that's interesting is, I need to make this point real quick because it's kind of important to the theology of it all. David acted like a priest, when his predecessor Saul got, he lost his kingship because he acted like a priest. But God led him. It was a foreshadowing of the fact that through Jesus Christ, that all of us would be considered priests before God. There's a beautiful passage in, in one of uh, Peter's epistles in the New Testament that says that, that, that we're all priests who offer spiritual sacrifices because, it says, we are in Zion. And I, 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 I skipped over that passage. I shared it in the first service, but you might want to look at that later. But, but, but interestingly as well, there was a law that said, and we could talk about all kinds of things, but I'll just share one more thing about this part of it. There was a law that said that someone who had Moabitish blood in their DNA could not even be a part of the congregation in Israel. They couldn't even go in the outer court. Okay, if you had Moabitish ancestry back to the 10th generation. David had a great-grandmother named Ruth. Her nickname was the Moabite. Why was her nickname the Moabite? Because she was from Moab. And you'll remember the story of how Ruth, after whom one of the uh, books in the Old Testament is named, how Ruth immigrated to Israel, was redeemed by a Jewish man named Boaz. Ruth and Boaz had a son, his name was Obed. Obed and his wife had a son whose name was Jesse. Jesse and his wife had a son whose name was David. Here David is now, king over Israel, wearing the linen ephod of a priest, standing in the very presence of a holy God. No wonder David danced. 
can you see? I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't even be able to walk in the outer court. And for some reason, God looked at me and said, you know what, David, I love you so much that I'm going to treat you like I have never treated anybody else in history, David. See, this is the reality all of us experience through grace. When God says, I choose you. I so love the world, I'm going to give my only begotten son. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to close the gap between messed up human beings and a holy God because God says to you, I want to be in relationship with you. I'm not interested in hiding behind a curtain. Just let's put up a pole tent and come in, if you would, and let's have a relationship with each other. The veil's been torn down, and you are welcome in my presence. So one of the things then that happens then is we get this sense that God moved from Sinai to Zion six or seven hours ago when I started this sermon. I read from Hebrews, how the writer to the Hebrews, these Jewish Christians who were thinking about going back to Judaism, they're, they're, they're struggling, and the writer to the Hebrews says, hey, we haven't come to Sinai, we've come to Zion. This is what's going on. And then part of the, uh, the, the thing that's happening in the New Testament then is there's this argument between those who felt like that followers of Jesus should have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved and to be a part of the church. And uh, then there were others who believed that we were saved by grace through faith. Grace is the decision God makes. Faith is our response to the decision. It is to believe that he really does love us, that he really did what needed to be done through Jesus to save us. Well, this argument between those who believed that Christians had to keep the law of Moses and those who didn't finally came to a head in a council in Jerusalem. That's one of the most important moments in the Christian church. It's where a decision was made as to whether or not Gentiles could be saved without keeping the law of Moses. Gentiles meaning non-Jewish people. Remember, all the early Christians who didn't call themselves Christians yet, all the early Christians were Jews, all of them. And then about nine or ten years after the resurrection, after the church is born on Pentecost, the apostle Peter is told by God to go preach to an Italian guy in an Italian household. And Peter says, I can't hang out with Gentiles. I'm a, I keep the law of Moses. And God says, I don't want you to go preach to him. I want you to go sit down and eat with him. I can't eat, you know, pork. God, I, there's no way. And God says, no, I want you to go. We're gonna, I, I, I've invited the whole world into what I'm doing. I love the whole world. So Peter goes and he preaches and this Italian guy in his household come to faith and you know, get filled with the Holy Spirit and get baptized. And, and, it's, and then it's, it's like a, a lot of, a lot of the, the Jewish followers of Jesus who believe Jesus was the Messiah are saying, oops, Peter, you, made him, you went to a Gentile's house and you preached. And hey, you know, they, they're going to have to start keeping the law of Moses. And of course, essential to keeping the law of Moses, I know this sounds bizarre, I I, I hate to even mention it right now, but it's necessary really to understand the story because it was really the issue at hand, was was the idea that these Gentile men who had come to faith in Jesus would have to be circumcised as was prescribed in the law of Moses in order to be considered to be in right covenant with God. And they were having a huge argument in the early church about whether or not Gentile men had to be circumcised to be a part of the church. Now imagine what that would do for church growth. Well, anyway, 
So they're, they're battling it out. And Paul and Barnabas start preaching all over uh, uh, near Asia and, and parts of Europe and Gentiles start getting saved like crazy. And finally, they have, they're having this big argument where that ends up being in a, at a council in Jerusalem that's presided over by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the bishop now of the early Christian church, the first bishop of the Christian church. And he's presiding in Jerusalem. And Simon Peter and Paul and Barnabas and their adversaries came together and said, Acts 15, 1 says, uh, uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And, and Paul and Barnabas got up and said, we're seeing Gentiles get saved like crazy. God's saving people by grace, not by the law. And then Simon Peter gets up and he tells his story. And then Simon Peter says, uh, verse 10, uh, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear but we in other words we can't we can't keep the law why should we expect these poor gentiles to have to keep the law but we believe that through the grace of the lord jesus christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they and then james stood up james was a known conservative james from all we can tell kept the law of moses he just believed that you didn't have to keep the law of moses to be saved but he was a faithful jew who stood up and said Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out a people for his name. Simon being Simon Peter. Has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And he quotes from the promise prophet Amos in the Old Testament. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, James said, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, in other words, the reason that Gentiles can be saved without having to keep the law of Moses is because what God's doing through the New Testament church is rebuilding a makeshift tent on Zion called the Tabernacle of David. God doesn't live at Sinai anymore. God has moved. We are not saved because we keep the law, because we're good people. We're saved because God loves us. And through Jesus Christ, he shows us his grace and brings us into relationship with himself. I want you this week to believe at the core of your being that God looks at you and God says, I love you. And I love you so much I sent Jesus. And then I want you to believe in your heart. The Father is so very fond of me because he is. Would you please stand with me?